right here exactly what it is that you would want to communicate to us. God, as I, as I stand here, I recognize that what I have to say this morning is of little importance. But God, what you would speak to us is of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of love, an instrument of the gospel. Holy Father, that Jesus might be lifted high, that I might be moved out of the way, that people might be drawn to your Son, Jesus, where there is life and hope, forgiveness. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So over the last few weeks here at Redemption, we've been moving through a series um, called Are You Serious? where we've taken certain topics from Scripture and sort of die, um, just sort of... Um, gone a little deeper with those topics, talk about why we do the things that we do. We've talked about baptism. We've talked about the Lord's Supper. We've talked about all these different kinds of things. And so, like I said this morning, our topic is worship. And so I'm going to start this morning with a passage of Scripture from Amos chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, Amos chapter 5, it'll also be on the screen for you, but let me read it for you. Amos chapter 5, starting in verse number 20. And this is what it says. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs... To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you shall take up Sicketh your king, and Kion your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts." When I think about worship, I think about this passage, and that's kind of weird, right? Because this passage is difficult and it's harsh. And yet, when I think about worship and I think about the Christian life and what worship has to do with it, my mind always drifts back to this passage first and foremost. There are certainly other places in Scripture where God talks about worship, and we're going to look at a few of those this morning. But I can never break away from this passage when I think about worship. And it's partly because of the harshness of it all. God says some pretty tough things to his people. And he essentially says in this passage that he hates their corporate worship, that he doesn't accept their offerings, that he doesn't even want to hear them sing any longer. And he closes the chapter by telling his people that they're going to send them into exile because of their idolatry. That's rough, right? There's no way around it. It's rough. It's harsh. And it's pretty clear why God says those things to his people if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, Amos chapter 5, which I didn't read it. But essentially, when God says these things to his people, that he doesn't accept their worship, what God is saying is that, is that there is a worship that is acceptable to him and there is a worship that is not acceptable to him. The worship that's not acceptable to God and the reason that God says these things in Amos chapter 5 He states at the very beginning of Amos chapter 5 why those things are. And it essentially boils down to 
the fact that God's people were not worshiping God in their everyday lives. It says that they hated the ones who spoke truth to them. It says they trampled on the poor. It says they sought after evil and sin. It says they afflicted the righteous and they didn't pursue justice. And so because of those things, their corporate times of worship together, their sacrifices, their assemblies, their festivals where they came together for special events, it was pointless for them to do that because the rest of their life was not spent in worship. Their lives were lived by worshiping someone or something else entirely, and ultimately their idols are what led to their ruin. Now, when we take that into account, and when you go and you read the entire book of Amos, it's an absolutely devastating book. And it's essentially and especially devastating for people who give token attention to God, but whose hearts are much more fully engaged by idols. And what are our idols, right? Because our idols aren't going to be little images that we make over here and bow down to. That's not part of our culture, right? We don't, we don't do that. We just, you just don't see that happening. So idols for us are not these images we make and say, hey, these things are God. We're going to bow down to them. Our idols are things that occupy our heart's attention, our heart's affection, our mind's attention. And they can be any numerous things. They can be the sports teams that we follow, our businesses, our family, our hobbies, money, sex, self-comfort, approval, power, whatever it may be, when these things occupy our attention and we desperately pursue them, even though they may be good, when we make them an ultimate thing, they become an idol. So if your outward acts of worship, as God says to His people here, if our outward acts of worship are a mask to give us some respectability or to make us feel better about ourselves while our heart is really attached to our idols and our comfort, then there's no point in us being together to worship corporately. That's tough to hear, right? No way around it. The taproot of Israel's sin and Amos here that Amos is talking to was that her heart was far from God even when they were worshiping. So at the very beginning of this chapter, in Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, before God goes into all these things, into saying all these things about why He doesn't accept their worship, He says this, Seek Me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord, and live. So, in other words, when Amos calls these people to repentance, when he tells them why God does not accept their worship, prior to doing that, he calls them to where? He calls them to a purpose. He calls them to a person. He doesn't call them to a place. He doesn't call them to a method. He calls God's people to a person. And here he says, seek the Lord. So, let me back up for a second. In Amos chapter 5, there's a clear tie between corporate worship as God's people, like what we're doing this morning, and the necessity to worship as a way of life. 
It's almost as if you can make the correlation here in chapter 5 that Amos and Scripture is really pointing us to the fact that corporate worship together is pointless unless it is an extension of our lives lived as worship at all times. Zach alluded to that already, which is why I said we could go home now. But there's a correlation between the way we live our lives together individually during the week and what happens when we come together corporately. You see, Amos is not just giving us a do-better, try-harder method of worship. He's pointing us to a person, like I said. And here, it's the Lord. It's, if you look in your Bibles, it's uppercase L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, God. And just let me be clear about something. Worship is something we all do. Whether we realize it or not, we all point our heart's affections somewhere. We do it all the time, whether we realize it or not. It's part of who we are. We were made to be a worshiping people. And we may worship things. We may worship people. We may worship ideas. We may worship ways of life. There's any number of things that we could worship. And the proof of that would be is that if you were to walk out of this room this morning and go to get in your car and your favorite celebrity, singer, author, athlete walked up to you, there'd be a little bit of worship going on because you would be in awe in that moment. It's just part of who we are. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Las Vegas. I was out there for um, my job outside of Redemption Church. I was there for a software conference. And I had a guy that was taking me to the hotel when it was time to leave. And we drove up into the circle where you could, you know, get your bags, jump out of the car and go in. And right before we pulled to a stop over to the right, I saw somebody that I grew up idolizing. And it was Hulk Hogan. It was awesome. And in that moment, I remembered when Hulk Hogan picked up Andre the Giant and body slammed him. Does anybody remember that other than me? Somebody has to remember that. So in that moment, I was in awe, and I jumped out of the car. I said, wait! And I ran over as fast as I could to Hulk Hogan, and he had about three or four people around him. And uh, I know they saw me coming, um, so they are probably a little freaked out. They just completely ignored me. So I waited for them to stop talking. And I said, Mr. Hogan! Like, so I'm standing over here. I'm just pretending I'm Hulk Hogan. I say, Mr. Hogan! And he goes... And he walks away. And in that moment, I stopped worshiping Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Worship is part of who we are. It's part of what we do. We are in awe of things. We give our heart's affections to things. We're all made to worship. And so what I want to spend a little bit of time doing is get a better understanding of what I mean by the word worship. Let me read you some quotes from people um, and how they've defined worship. Louis Giglio defines worship this way. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Josh Riley defines worship this way. Worship is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, revealing that which we treasure and value most in life. Mark Driscoll defines worship as living our life individually and corporately as continuous living sacrifices to the glory of a person or a thing. 
D.A. Carson says this, to worship God in spirit and in truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Christ. In Him the reality has dawned and the shadows are being swept away. Christian worship is new covenant worship. It is gospel-inspired worship. It is Christ-centered worship. It is cross-focused worship. So from my perspective, when we talk about worship, there's really two defining characteristics of worship, I think. One of those things is this, is that worship happens as a response. That's number one. Worship happens as a response to that which we value and assign great worth. That's number two. I think that's true of any uh, good definition of worship that, you're, that, that we're going to work from. Uh, it happens as a response to that which we value and assign great worth to. So moving on from there, we would say that Christian worship is a response to that which holds the most value and the most worth. And we would say that's Jesus. So if I was going to come up with a working definition for worship, this would be my working definition for worship. You can write this down if you want. You don't have to. We're going to say that true Christian worship is living our life individually and corporately focused on Christ as continuous living sacrifices in response to his incredible worth. I'll read it again. True Christian worship is living our life individually and corporately, focused on Christ as continuous living sacrifices in response to his incredible worth. Now, this is how I came to that definition. Is I started moving through some passages in Scripture that deal with worship very specifically. And I'm going to talk through just a couple or, or three of those passages over the next few minutes, and we're going to figure out where those perspectives come from, and then we're going to take those perspectives and apply them directly to our life, okay? So hang in there. Don't fall asleep on me yet. John chapter 4, there's this incredible story of Jesus um, as he's traveling through a portion of Israel called Samaria, and he's walking along, going from the southern portion of Israel to the northern portion, and he travels through this area called Samaria. And just for a little perspective in that time, there was a tremendous amount of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, the Jews looked at Samaritans as people who didn't quite live up to what God required of them, even though they shared some common background and some common history. And so it was not uncommon for Jewish people and Samaritan people to not ever interact. Or if they did interact, it was, uh, it was not nice. Lots of tension. They didn't like one another. And so Jesus is moving through Samaria and he stops at this well and this lady comes out to talk to him and we know from Scripture um, that uh, this lady comes out alone and the disciples go into town and it's just Jesus and this lady sitting out at the well and Jesus begins to converse with her. And if you read the story, she's surprised that Jesus is interacting with her, which in that particular context it would have been surprising for Jesus to do that. So Jesus begins to talk to her and he begins to put his finger on some certain things in her life and he begins to point out maybe some sin in her life and some other things and she responds to Jesus and she starts to take the conversation into another direction which isn't surprising uh, because it's probably uncomfortable for her in that moment. And so as they're having this conversation um, she goes and she asks Jesus about worship and she says, 
You say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we're going to worship here. So where are we really supposed to worship, Jesus? And this is Jesus' response to her in John chapter 4, verses 22 through 23. Or I'll start in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So this lady says, Jesus, where are we supposed to go worship? And Jesus answers and says, oh, well, you're supposed to worship in spirit and truth. And that's an odd way to answer the question, right? Jesus, where are we supposed to worship? Oh, you're supposed to worship Him with spirit and truth. Jesus, what does that mean? What, what are you saying, Jesus? And I think what Jesus is getting at, when Jesus says that true worship happens in spirit and truth, it means at least this. All right, It means at least this. So stay with me for a minute. I think it means at least that you must be born of the Spirit in order to worship God, and you must come to Him through the truth, and that is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, so to worship God in spirit means that we have to be empowered and the Holy Spirit of God has to live within us. That we become a, a living spirit, if that makes sense, according to what Scripture teaches. And so we can worship in spirit after we come to God through the truth, which is Jesus. And so at that point, we can see and embrace truth, and that's, and that's Jesus. And so first and foremost, worshiping God in spirit and truth means um, God being at work in our lives to bring us to know Him as the truth and then indwelling us with His Holy Spirit so that we can respond in worship to Jesus. All right, everybody with me? You good? Because I, I think I confused myself. But as long as you guys are with me, we're good. So we worship the Father in spirit. We worship the Father through the truth that is Jesus, the supreme truth that is Jesus. And so first and foremost, we have to say that worship is by and through and centered on Jesus. Not on a place, not on a method of worship, not on a style of worship, but worship and first and foremost centered on and around Jesus. It's about keeping our eyes on Jesus, the truth. It's about responding as the Holy Spirit empowers us to on a daily basis to the truth of Jesus. I have a five-year-old daughter named Laurel. And if you've had any chance to be around Laurel, you'll know that she's full of energy and she's crazy um, and she's fun and she's funny. And uh, I love her to death. But I've learned something about Laurel. When I talk to Laurel, I have to say, Laurel, I need you to look in my eyes. I need you to look me in my eyes because I'm going to tell you something and I want you to remember it. And sometimes you have to tell, tell her multiple times and you have to get her to focus in and you have to be sure that she listens because I'll tell her something and I'll say, did you hear me? And I'll say, she'll say yes. And I'll say, what, I'll say, what, did you say, what did I say? And she'll say, I don't remember. And so I make her look me in the eye when I talk to her. And sometimes I'm in the room and the TV is on in the background. 
And I'm trying to tell her something. And I'll say, Laura, look me in the eye so that you hear what I have to say. And I'll see her eyes. Instead of looking at me, they'll shift to the TV. I'll say, Laura, look at me. And she'll come back. And as I'm talking, her eyes shift. And she can't do it. It's impossible for her to look at me in the eye when the TV is on. So I'll have to turn around and cut the TV off, get her to focus in on me, and talk to her. That is the essence and the beginning of what I mean by being focused on Christ. It's keeping our eyes on Christ. All around us there are distractions. Those distractions are normal. But the essence of worship begins with being focused and centered on Christ. Not over here, not over here, on Christ. You with me? If our worship is about us, if our worship is about anything else, if our worship, ultimately though, our worship is about us at times, and if our worship is about meeting our needs, then our worship is man-centered, and we are our own idols. If we take the focus off of Jesus and put it on us, put it on anything else, Ultimately, what we're doing is committing idolatry, which at the end of Amos chapter 5, God says, I'm going to send you into exile because you were over here worshiping these other gods instead of me. It's a big deal. Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in the book of Jude, but Jude 5 says this, Now I want to, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We know that from Scripture has to do with idolatry. Here's my point. Worship is first and foremost about being centered and focused on Christ. When our worship drifts, when our worship goes anywhere else, it's incredibly dangerous. And God speaks very strongly about it in His Word. Going back to our working definition of worship. Worship is being focused on Christ because that's where Jesus pointed this woman at the well to Himself. That she might know the truth about Him. That she might be empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit to truly worship God through Jesus. Jesus would be doing us a disservice if He pointed us anywhere else other than to Himself. So worship is ultimately about being focused and centered on Jesus. Here's a second perspective from Scripture. It comes from Matthew chapter 14, if you want to go and turn there. It's a few more verses that I'm going to read through. Um, So worship, well let me just read it and I'll go on. Matthew chapter 14, if you'll turn there. Starting in verse number 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let me give you a little background for this passage. Immediately before this happens, Jesus fed 5,000 people. You know the story with two loaves of bread and a fish. He feeds these people. He goes off to spend some time in prayer, and he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And so they're out there on the water, and when it says the fourth watch of the night, uh, the best I can tell is that somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They're out there, and Jesus becomes walking on the water to the boat, which is a really big deal. And Peter sees him, and Peter says, if it is you, let me come walk to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, come on. So Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins walking. It's funny to me, I don't know if you caught it, but it says that Peter started looking around, and he was afraid of the wind, and that's why he began to sink. I want to be like, Peter, you were walking on water. What's the wind got to do with it? Nonetheless, Peter begins to look around, look at his circumstances, and he begins to sink. And so Jesus helps him up. They get on the boat, and the disciples respond in worship. And it's pretty clear why they responded in worship. Because Jesus had just done something amazing, right? So they're responding to what Jesus had done in that moment. He had shown great power. He fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. And then he comes walking on the water. And then Peter walks on the water. And so they respond in worship to what Jesus had done. But the story keeps going from Matthew chapter 14. Keeps going. You get over, they get over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus starts to heal people. And he begins to teach different things. And he heals a couple of people or several people. He heals many people, Matthew chapter 15 actually says. And so the disciples continue to see Jesus do these amazing things to to perform these miracles. And I'm sure they're, they're still continuing to be blown away by what Jesus is doing. And then in Matthew chapter 15 Verse 32, they get to another situation where there are 4,000 people gathered around that need to eat. And they look at Jesus and go, Oh no, Jesus, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? And I credit Ben with this. I'm sure Jesus looked at them and went, Are you guys serious? Are you serious? I just fed 5,000 people. I walked on the water. Peter walked on the water with me. I've healed all these people. Are you serious? What are we going to do? And so in that moment, whatever the disciples got by worshiping Jesus for the amazing things that he did, they lost some perspective. But in the very next chapter of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, they began to get that perspective back. Matthew chapter 16 is where Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter responds and says, You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. True worship isn't just responding to what Jesus has done for us. Should we worship Jesus because of what He has done for us? Absolutely. But true worship is also carried along by understanding who Jesus is. 
It's being focused on Jesus, but it's recognizing who He is. It's recognizing His great worth as the Messiah, God. The disciples worshipped Jesus because of what He did, but they were missing something in that moment. It's not till later, and it's not really after, until after the resurrection that the disciples really get it. They really get it then. But in Matthew chapter 16, Peter starts to pick up on it. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You see, true worship isn't just about responding to what Jesus does for us. It's about responding to who Jesus is. His imminent worth. My mother-in-law and father-in-law just came back from Alaska. They had the privilege of going on a two-week trip to Alaska and cruising around and doing some touring and and all this other cool stuff. And um, when they came home, they they brought my kids some some gifts. And so one of the things they brought home was a bag of fool's gold pyrite. And so they handed this little bag, these little bags to my daughters, and my daughters dumped the bags out and saw the stones inside. And they were like, yay, it's gold. We can go to Target and buy things. And I was like, well, no, that doesn't really work that way. Um, You can't just give them gold at Target and buy new baby dolls. Um, And my daughter Natalie said, well, maybe I can fool them and they'll think it's real gold. No, baby, that's not a good thing. Here's why that's not a good thing. Um, But essentially, my daughters wanted to take this pyrite, not gold, and go to Target and get some new toys but what they had in their bags of gold was worthless absolutely worthless no value at all and yet my daughters wanted to use the worthless rocks to buy something they were putting in essence their trust into these worthless rocks to get the baby dolls that they wanted You see, understanding someone's or something's worth changes our perspective. And understanding Christ's worth is going to change our perspective from Him just being Jesus to Him being our all in all, to Him being everything to us. There's nothing of any worth that we have that's greater than Jesus. Nothing. Should we worship and thank God for what Jesus has done for us? Absolutely. He died on the cross. Gave us new life. Absolutely. But ultimately our worship needs to boil down to the fact that God and Jesus, that that Jesus is eminently worthy of our worship and nothing else is. We should worship Jesus for who He is Inherently. So moving on from there, um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's going to be the third perspective we gain on worship. But we understand already that worship is centered on Jesus because Jesus is the only one worthy of that worship. Thirdly, Romans 12, 1 and 2, if you want to turn there, I'll read this passage.
says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The third perspective we should gain on worship is this. Worship is life. And life is worship. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were a means of of worship. You you took these animals and you burned them on the altar and um, those animals would be consumed to some extent or in some cases the priest would take the meat and eat it. But nonetheless, the animal was destroyed as an act of worship. And so in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Scripture tells us to live our lives to be living sacrifices. Sacrifices that are continually consumed in worship. Sacrifices that don't die but keep on worshiping all the time. From our work to our homes to our families to our actions, thoughts, motivations, everything being about worship. And so in verse 1 here, Romans tells us to continually be worshiping by our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2 here though, I think Paul sort of centers in on how we go on and worship, how we enable all of our life to be worshiped. And it's through the renewal of our minds. Mind renewal is a deep spiritual change in how the mind assesses things and values things. Stay with me here for just a little while. The renewal Paul is calling for is profound and it's much deeper than just mental assent to something. It's much deeper than just mental effort. It's why in the Christian life, prayer and spiritual disciplines are utterly essential. That our prayer might constantly be, open my eyes, God, that I may see what it is you want me to see. Let my heart, let my mind know what it is you're trying to tell me. God, cause me to see and to know exactly what it is you want me to see and know. And God must do that renewing through His Word, through His Spirit, through our life spent seeking God. So the issue in Romans 12, 2 boils down to who or what are we valuing most? In our worry, we are immediately valuing our circumstances. In our sexual sins, we're valuing our own pleasure. In our search for power or money or whatever it is, we're valuing ourself. And all of life is worship. And that worship is carried along by our minds being transformed so that we learn to value and approve that which God values and approves. Does that make sense? Nod your head like this. No? Yes. So again, let me bring this back around. How does this relate to us being living sacrifices, being consumed in worship, being what Romans 12.1 says, our, our spiritual act of worship here. What verse 2 describes is a, a living sacrifice because the renewal of our minds, because in the renewal of our minds, we learn a whole new way of ta- tasting and assessing and approving and valuing and treasuring what God has to offer. We are, as Paul said 
elsewhere, crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us. So the renewal of our minds is the dying of old values and the coming to life of new values. It's the dying of idols that we treasure and it's the awakening of a focus and an understanding of how valuable Jesus really is. It's coming to value things like obedience. I teach my kids all the time that obedience is doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. It's learning to treasure and value things like obedience in response to the incredible worth and value of Christ. It's learning to treasure and value things like service in response to the incredible worth and value of Christ. It's learning to interact with our family in a new way because Christ is worthy and He's put us in that family. It's learning to interact in our jobs in a new way because Christ is worthy and He's put us in our jobs. It's learning to interact with our neighbors in a new way because Christ is worthy and He's put us in our neighborhood, right? That's worship. It's learning to value and approve what Jesus values and approves. Going back to our definition, worship is being focused on Christ. It's about valuing Jesus for who He is. And it's about daily worshiping by responding in every area of our life to Jesus because of His great value. Worship is about Jesus. It's a response to Jesus. And it's a response informed by Jesus' great value. Worship isn't about us. It's not about what we do. It's about Jesus. It's about a response to Jesus. It's about a response informed by Jesus' great value and His great worth as we learn to value what Jesus values. You with me? I'll give you three action steps. They're simple, but I want you to take them to heart. Number one, you're making a mistake if you walk out of this room this morning and you don't identify things in your life that you were worshiping instead of Jesus. Tim Keller says this, and I have to credit Ben because he sent me this quote this week. Everybody has something that if they lose it, they won't even want to live life anymore. That is what you're worshiping. So identify in your life what it is you're worshiping that's not Jesus. Once you identify what it is, step number two, repent and go to Jesus. Don't repent and go to something else. That's what repentance is. It's turning from that thing and going to Jesus. Identify what it is in your life that you're worshiping other than Jesus. If there is nothing else, then thank God for that. But I would suspect that all of us have something we can identify. Step two, repent of that thing and respond to Jesus. Step number three, it's this. You need to cultivate the value of Christ through the renewal of your mind. This is utterly relevant to our daily lives because 95% of the things we do during the day, we do without any real logical reflection. We just act spontaneously out of the spirit of our mind, out of what Jesus said, the abundance of our heart. So to live the Christian life with any authenticity, if we're going to live the Christian life with any authenticity, we must be in the process of a deep renewal of our minds that goes beyond mere thinking and goes to valuing, right valuing. Valuing Jesus above all else leads to a life characterized by being a living 
sacrifice, a, a sacrifice that keeps on being consumed and worshiping rather than, rather than one that is consumed and, and goes away. So identify the things in your life that you worship other than Jesus. Number two, repent of that thing and run to Jesus. It doesn't do you any good to run to something else. Repent of that thing and run to Jesus. And thirdly, you need to cultivate the value of Christ through the renewal of your mind. That is only going to happen through the work of Scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So the way that you cultivate that is through seeking Christ, through reading God's Word, through times spent in prayer, through times with other believers, through times, missional communities, DNA groups, whatever it may be. Pursue those things that our minds might be renewed because of Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, thank You for the reminder this morning from Your Word that You are eminently valuable. Thank You, God, that there is... Thank you that you have revealed to us that which is most valuable. And God, I pray that you would draw our hearts and our minds to you, the only place where there is hope, the only place where there is renewal, the only place where there is life. God, draw us to you. God, help us to identify the things in our lives that take our focus from you. God, help us to repent of those things. Thank you for the beautiful gift of repentance that when we do, God, you willingly accept us and bring us back to where we need to be. And so, God, lead us to repentance. God, lead us to pursue you that our minds might be changed to love what you love, to value what you value. God, this can't be done apart from your work in our lives. So, God, we ask that you would work in our lives, that you would continue to work on our behalf. God, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.